Um, as we get into today's sermon, I want to start out by telling you a story. Um, there's a pastor in Canada who's also a professor at a Christian university there. His name is Mark Buchanan, and he wrote a book called Hidden in Plain Sight. In it, he wrote um, about a woman named Regine. Regine was originally from Rwanda, but she came to Christ while reading her Bible during the genocide that ravaged uh, her country years ago. When she fled to Canada, she ended up meeting her husband named Gordon. They were married, and years later, they actually went back to Rwanda to show the love of Christ to some of the very same people who had at one time been her enemies. And Regine told Pastor Mark Buchanan this particular story of God's grace. She says this. She says, um, a woman's only son was killed. She was consumed with grief and hate and bitterness. God, she prayed, reveal my son's killer. One night this woman had a dream and in that dream she was going to heaven. But there was a complication. In order to get to heaven she had to pass through a certain house. She asked God whose house this was. He told her, it's the house of your son's killer. For her, in her dream, the way to heaven required her to pass through the house of her enemy. Two nights later, not a dream now. Two nights later, there was a knock at her door. She opened it and there stood a young man who was about the age that her son would have been. The young man said, I am the one who killed your son. Since that day, I have had no life, no peace. So here I am. I am placing my life in your hands. Do with me as you wish. Kill me. I'm dead already. Throw me in jail. I am in prison already. Torture me. I am in torment already. She found to her own surprise that she had no desire to do any of those things. Rather, she found that she only wanted one thing. A son. So she said this. This is what I ask of you. Come into my home. Eat the food that I would have prepared for my son. Wear the clothes that I would have made for my son. And become the son that I lost. And so he did. Grace can turn enemies into family. Grace can turn enemies into family. And in our text today, we're going to see how God's grace turned an enemy of his family into a member of his family. Guys, this is the 19th week in our study through the book of Acts. Last week, we left off in chapter 8, and uh, my brother Phil uh, talked to us about the biblical Philip, the, the, the evangelist. And as Phil so eloquently stated it last week, it was the lover of horses telling us about the messenger of God. Remember that for those of you guys who were here? Philip the evangelist uh, was used by God to start taking the gospel outside of Jerusalem and into the regions of Judea and Samaria. Because remember, what is the big point of the book of Acts that we've been saying all along? The big point of the book of Acts is, that, is to tell us how Jesus intends to make his disciples become his witnesses starting in Jerusalem and then to the ends of the earth. And so in chapter 8, we learned how God initially started moving the gospel outside of Jerusalem and into the regions of Judea and Samaria. And one of the means that God used to advance the gospel outside of Jerusalem was the means of suffering, right? In chapter 7 and 8, we met a man named Saul 
who began ravaging the church, the scripture says. And he stood and watched while some of the early church leaders murdered a young Christian man named Stephen. He became the first martyr of the church. Saul didn't just watch on, but later the scripture says that he was dragging Christians out of their homes, throwing men and women into jail. And so chapter seven and eight of the book of Acts introduced us to this man named Saul. Well, today we're gonna get into his story uh, even more. As you know, many of you know, Saul is the same man as the apostle Paul in the scripture. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name. When he was with the Jews, he would go by Saul. When he was with the Greeks in the Roman Empire, he went by Paul. And eventually the writers of scripture started to just commonly refer to him as Paul or Paul the Apostle. And so what we have in Acts chapter 9 is the story of Saul's conversion or Paul's conversion. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 1 through 19. Like always, I'm going to make several teaching points along the way. We're going to end with a handful of personal application takeaways. And here's the thing. I hope that you leave here today being reminded of and encouraged by the power of God's grace that can turn an enemy into a member of God's family. That's what we're going to see today. So let's start out looking at verse 1. Look at verse 1. It says this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. I want to just stop right there and just... Point something foundational out right from the beginning. Um, some of your versions of scripture might say that Saul was breathing out threats. Others of you may have versions of scripture that say that he was breathing in threats. There's a, kind of some different translations there depending on what version of the scripture that you're reading. Why is that? Here's why. Because in the original language, um, it's, it, there's this idea of breathing or taking something in and, and, and moving something out. It's both there in the original language. So what I want you to understand is that when it says that Paul was breathing threats and murder against disciples, it doesn't mean that Saul was all talk and no action. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that the aggression against Christians was like the breath of life for Saul. Saul's whole life, he saw his life's purpose was to, advance, was to stop the advance of the Christian faith. So when we read about his conversion in a minute in this text, Saul's conversion was a completely unexpected conversion. Totally unexpected. Can you imagine right now if Kim Jong-un became a Christian and started advocating for religious liberty? Can you imagine if Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins converted to Christianity and started trying to write and persuade people to believe in God? Can you imagine if the leader of ISIS converted and became a Christian, and not only that, but then became a Christian missionary to uh, Muslims in the Middle East? Right? That's what Saul's conversion was like. His conversion was a completely unexpected conversion. Why is that? Because his life was committed to stopping the advance of the Christian faith. So verse 1 says that he was breathing out threats and that he went to the high priest. And verse 2 says that he went to the high priest to ask him for letters. These are like arrest warrants that he wanted the, the high priest to, to issue to him so that he could go to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, which is what Christians were originally called, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. All right, so he's going, he wants to go to Damascus. Why? Because in Damascus, there was a high population of Jews. 
There were about 40 synagogues in Damascus during this time. And Saul knew that if Christians were making their way into these synagogues and uh, they were persuading Jews to believe in Christ, then that would be a big problem for Judaism around the world. So he didn't want his fellow Jews believing that a dead man named Jesus was truly the Messiah. Remember, the apostle Paul did not believe in Jesus. He did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Yet. But that was all about to change. And that's what we're going to read about today. But he's on his way to Damascus. Guys, I want you to think about this. Damascus is like 150 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Saul was willing to travel like 150 miles, likely for you know, five or six days on foot. Why? To, to harass Christians. And do them harm. Like that seems a long ways to travel, 150 miles northeast until you Ohio State fans start to think that that's just about as long as it takes to get up to Michigan, right? Just travel up there, harass them, and bring them home, right? That's, for those of you who may not know, I'm from Michigan, so we razz each other around here. But the point is, is that Saul was an enemy of Christ. He was an enemy of the church. He wanted to not only arrest these Christians, but he wanted to bring them back to Jerusalem and keep them in jail. He didn't want to see the gospel spread out beyond Jerusalem, certainly not to Judea and Samaria or to the ends of the earth, which is totally ironic because this is the very same guy whom God is going to say, I want you to be the one to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth. Amazing. So here is Saul on his way to Damascus to arrest and harass the Christians that he hates And verse 3 says this, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So here we have Saul who is violently opposing Christ and Christians. His heart is not open to the Lord at all. He is hard-hearted. He is not about the Christian faith. He's about as anti-Jesus and anti-Christian as someone can be. Yet right in the middle of his hard-heartedness, the Lord does what? He appears suddenly. He had a surprise visit from Jesus. The truth is, sometimes the Lord shows up by surprise in our lives, doesn't he? Sometimes we can reflect back on our own lives and say, man, I just, I didn't see him coming. And yet here we are today believing. See, you may not be looking for Jesus, but he may just be looking for you. You may not be seeking him. He may be seeking you. Your heart may today may not be open to Jesus, but his heart's open to you. Sometimes the Lord Jesus just shows up by surprise in your life. I like to say that sometimes he wants to make a divine interruption into your life. I wonder this morning, has the Lord made a divine interruption into your life? Has he divinely interrupted your, your course, your plan, the way you thought your life was gonna go? Has he divinely interrupted your life? I hope he has. When the Lord divinely interrupted Saul's life, verse four says that Saul fell to the ground. Fell to the ground. Falling to the ground, it says, he heard a voice speaking to him. See, keep in mind, like, Saul, here here is Saul, and God is humbling him, right? He's putting him down on the ground. Keep in mind that before all this, um, Saul had studied the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. He was well-trained in the ways of the Pharisees. He had 
very likely heard the apostles of Jesus preaching the gospel of Christ. He had certainly heard the message of Stephen preaching the gospel uh, before he was killed. But none of those things resulted in Saul becoming a Christian and starting to follow Jesus until something happened. The Lord knocked him down. And the truth is, the Lord may just have to humble your life in order to save your life. He may sometimes knock you down a notch. He may bring you low. He may put you in a position that you don't prefer to be. The Lord may have to humble your life in order to save your life. And that's exactly what happens to Saul. He gets knocked on the ground and Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And verse five, Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. Three important things that I want you to note here in these couple verses. The first one is this. This is when Paul starts to realize Jesus is indeed alive. He can't ignore it, right? He used to believe Jesus was not the Messiah. He certainly didn't rise from the dead. Saul did not believe that. But here he is confronted with the bright shining light, a voice from heaven saying, I am Jesus, right? So this is Paul's first realization, Jesus is indeed alive. Second thing that's going on here, he's not just realizing Jesus is alive, but he's realizing Jesus is united with his church, the Christians, the people of the way. And he says, Saul, why have you been persecuting me? Jesus is united with his church. The, when, when Saul was persecuting the church, Jesus was taking it personally. You get it? It's, Jesus is united with his church. It's why Jesus would say in the book of Matthew, hey, whenever you've met the needs of one of these least of, of my brothers, then you've done it to who? Me, Jesus says. And here it's why he says in Acts that when you persecute these brothers of mine, you're persecuting me. Paul is realizing Jesus is alive, Jesus is with his church, and he also starts to realize that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Saul says, who are you, Lord? The answer is, I am Jesus. Paul is getting hit with the facts right in his face that Jesus is alive, Jesus is with his church, and that Jesus is Lord. This is the divine interruption. This is the way that God suddenly showed up into Saul's life, and Saul came to understand these important things. In verse 6, Jesus tells, tells Saul what to do next. He says, go to the city. You'll know what to do there. So Saul obeys. Verse 7 says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Guys, do you see how... The revelation of Christ, like the, the message from the Lord, it had different effects on different people. These other men who were traveling with Paul, they heard the voice, they heard the message, but it didn't affect them in the same way. Saul lost his physical sight, but he gained his spiritual sight. These other men retained their physical sight, but they did not gain spiritual sight. The same message had different effects on different people. And that's the same way that the gospel message about Jesus can go forth today. People can come and they can hear the preaching of God's word. They can hear the message of Christ. Certain people who are going to be here today, you're going to hear the message of Christ. And people are going to hear it differently than you. That's why we pray, Lord, give us ears to hear what you are saying to the church. One person hears and they're humbled. The other person hears and they just move on as if it was just nothing. Saul heard, 
And he was humbled and responded to the Lord. The rest don't seem to be responding in the same way. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Like, can't, I, I read this and I chuckle, right? Because I'm like, this, this is a very sensible response to the Lord. Okay, Lord, um, you just asked me to go pray with Kim Jong-un. Do you know what he's up to? Right? Like, this is kind of what's going on here. Lord, do you have the right guy? Right? And that's what's going on with Ananias. And verse 15 says, but the Lord said to him, go, why? For he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I love how the Lord said to Ananias that Saul is a chosen instrument of mine. It's why later when the Apostle Paul is writing his letter to the Galatians, he would be telling his testimony and he would say this. Paul would testify and he would say, but when he who had set me apart before I was born. Can you imagine being Paul coming to that understanding? Whoa, God had this call on my life before I was born, before I was raised in Judaism, before I was ravaging Christians and bringing them out of their homes and throwing them into jail. Before all that, the Lord had set me apart. Paul says in Galatians 1.15, but he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Guys, Saul was converted because God chose Saul. Saul wasn't out looking to choose Jesus. He was anti-Jesus. Saved by grace. Saul went to Damascus in order to make arrests. God sent Saul to Damascus in order to be arrested. You get it? Saul wanted to capture Christians. God wanted to capture Saul. God wanted to, Saul wanted to keep Christians in Jerusalem. God wanted to make Christians get to the ends of the earth. And he wanted to use Saul to do it. God wanted Ananias to be assured that he had chosen Saul for his purposes. Look at verse 16. God says to Ananias, for I will show him, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Suffering for the sake of something is a pretty good indicator that you believe it's true, isn't it? It would have been a pretty good ploy for the devil, the enemy, to kind of get Saul to fake his conversion and then get in good with the Christians and the converts, know who they are, know who their leaders are, and then, bam, bring on the arrests, you know? Take them all into prison. I'm sure that Ananias was thinking that Saul was up to something like that. But God says, no, Ananias, Saul is truly my man. 
And you're going to see it when you see him suffer for my name's sake, which we're going to read about in the book of Acts here, how much Saul did indeed end up suffering for the sake of Christ's name. So God is assuring Ananias that Saul's faith is sincere. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I love that Ananias calls Saul, brother Saul. I mean, think about this, right? Like Ananias knew that like a day ago, he was probably on Saul's like warrant list. Originally, Ananias and Saul would have been considered enemies. Now Ananias calls Saul brother, part of the family. Saul had a personal experience with Jesus and Saul went from being an enemy of the family to being a member of the family. Why? Because the power of God's grace can turn enemies of his family into members of his family. Do you believe that this morning? Let's look at these last two verses. Verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Guys, the first thing Saul did after he was converted and he had been come to Christ and been a recipient of the Holy Spirit, the first thing he did was what? He got baptized. It was immediate for him, just like it was immediate for the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, just like it was immediate for those who believed Peter's message on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4. They were cut to the heart. They said, what do we do? Repent, be baptized. And, and thousands were baptized on those days, right? And here we are. As soon as Saul is converted, immediately he's baptized. Guys, this is the way that someone who's truly converted, this is the way that they are uh, immediately displaying it and showing it to the world. They're willing to say, I'm following Jesus and I'm part of his family now. So I'm joining with his family through the public act of water baptism. God's grace turns enemies of his family into members of his family. I want to end with five takeaways for us today. As time's getting ready to wrap up, I want to leave five takeaways. The first one is for people here who think you're saved, but you're actually not. The second one is for people here who you're like, I, I am really not interested in following Jesus. And the last three takeaways are for people who do call yourselves followers of Jesus and have been saved by his grace. And as I share these five with you, I'm gonna hustle through these, but I just wanna say right now, would you, as I'm speaking out loud, would you in your heart, would you pray, Lord, give me ears to hear what you're saying. I'm not expecting all five of these to hit home with every one of you, but maybe one, maybe one could hit home for you. Listen to what the Lord might say to you now. The first takeaway is this. Everyone hear me on this. You can be religiously sincere and still be sincerely lost. Everyone who has grown up going to church, Christian education, participated in life and religious tradition, you need to hear this. You can be religiously sincere and sincerely lost. Saul was religiously devoted. He was sincerely religious. He was sincere in the customs of Judaism, knowledgeable of the Old Testament scriptures, attended synagogue, was friends with the religious leaders of his day. He was zealously out, you know, uh, um, fighting for the very things that he believed to be true about God, yet he was lost. 
Why? Here's why. Because being religious is not the same as having a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. No matter how churchy or religious you might think you are, here's what you have to ask. Do I actually have a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus? Do I know God personally? That's the question. Do you have a moment when the person and work of Jesus Christ became special to you and you had a sense of his Holy Spirit coming and living within you and God taking up residence in your own life, changing you from the inside out? Have you had anything like that that has occurred in your life? I'm not asking you if you've had a radical moment where you've seen the light and scales fall off your eyes and some, you know, dramatic thing happened. I'm not asking you that because that's not the way every conversion goes. But I am asking you this. Like, do you have a real, internal, personal relationship with Jesus? I am not asking you, are you committed to the church? Do you attend regularly? Do you give generously? Do you, do, you, do you serve others? Do you pray a lot? I'm not asking you all of those things. I'm asking you, do you know Jesus? Because Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to know you personally, and you can know him personally by repenting of your sin and believing that he died on the cross, rose three days later, acknowledge him as Lord, and he will send his Holy Spirit to live inside of you, and you will know him personally, not just religiously. Has that ever happened to you? So many people in our culture, I believe, are religious without a relationship with Christ. Second takeaway, some of you may be here and you're like, you know, I've, I'm just a total non-believer. I, I'm not really, I haven't been interested in the things of Jesus. It's not been on my radar. Here's what I want to say to you. God may drop a divine interruption into your life in order to save it. God may drop a divine interruption into your life in order to save it. In our text, Saul was suddenly, out of the blue, met by God. Saul was just doing his thing, going about his life in his own way. And a divine appointment came and God came and he knocked Saul down to the ground. God humbled Saul's life in order to save it. And God may have to humble your life in order to save it. He may give you a divine interruption. And it could look like a plethora of things. It might look like cancer. It might look like the loss of a loved one. It might look like the loss of a job. It may look like a divorce. It may look like some secret in your life getting exposed for all to see. It may be something very humbling like that. It may be a conversation, something, something with a friend where a conversation opens your eyes to the gospel. It could be a song that you've heard. It might be a dream that you've had. It might be an act of service done to you. It might be a message about Jesus that you're being, hearing preached today. It could be anything. But sometimes God will divinely interrupt your life in order to get your attention and save your soul. So if God is placing a divine interruption in your life, pay attention. Because sometimes our lives need to be divinely interrupted. And here's why. Because if we just think we're fine, we just think we're fine as we are, then we will never realize our need for a savior. So God interrupts us gets our attention, and he does it to humble us and bring us to our knees so that we, like Saul, will cry out and say, who are you, Lord? And in that moment, 
When we humble ourselves before the Lord and we admit that we are sinners and that we're broken before the Lord and that we need forgiveness, the Lord will show you that although you are a great sinner, he's a great savior. And if you repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross of Calvary to take the wrath of God that you and I deserved for our sin and that God showed that his son truly was his son by raising him from the dead three days later, when you believe that, the scripture says that that's how your sins are forgiven and your relationship with God is made right. So you admit you're a sinner, you believe upon Jesus and confess Christ as Lord of your life and the Holy Spirit comes to live within you and makes you new. And God will have divinely interrupted your life in order to save it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who have believed in the Lord Jesus, three encouragements for you. Three, the last three takeaways are for you. Here's the, here's the next one. Church family, do not give up on the most unlikely convert in your life. You may look at your life right now and you would say, oh, I love this person so much, but... I think they're too far gone. Saul was one of the most unlikely people to be converted, you know? No one would have ever expected Saul to follow Jesus. If you would have went to a Jewish synagogue in, in Saul's day and Saul was there and, you know, you're like, hey, who here is, the, who here is the, you know, the last person to follow Jesus? Everyone would have been like, Saul, that guy. But in a sudden, unexpected, divine moment, what did God do? God saved him. Nothing's impossible for God. He is able to save to the uttermost, right? The most unlikely person in your life can be saved too. Some of you, listen, some of you may have hard-hearted parents. Some of you may have grandparents whose hearts are closed to Christ. Some of you may have children who you raised to know the Lord and even at some point in their life they tipped their hat to their faith but now they've gone away and they've, not only rejected the faith, but their hearts have become hard and they don't even want you talking about Jesus in their presence anymore. I'm telling you, this is who Saul was. Divine interruption changed his life. God can do it, can't he? God can do it. Don't give up. God can do it. Don't give up on the most unlikely convert in your life. I also want to say this. Church family, you need to know this. God converted Saul for your sake. We read about Saul's conversion, and I want you to know that God converted Saul for your sake. I mean, think about what happened here. Saul lived in rebellion to Christ. He hated Christians, yet God didn't just give up on him. God saved him, patiently waited, drew Saul in. Eventually, he became converted, became a missionary, wrote letters to churches that would end up in our Bible that would form the very same message that for 2,000 years people have been preaching so that someday, somehow, 2,000 years later, someone across the ocean, someone got the gospel here to America to preach it to you. God saved Saul for our sakes. And Saul, as time went on, he would talk about his own conversion and share his testimony. And one of the things that he wanted people to understand is that as a Christian, you may look at your life with shame and 
it may be unthinkable to you that God could truly save you. Can't you imagine that that's the way the Apostle Paul felt? It's why he would write things like this. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy, Paul says, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Why? As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God has given us the example of Saul's conversion. God has given us the story of the Apostle Paul so that we can look at ourselves and say, oh God, I am, I am the least likely to be saved, yet you did it. And he saved you for your encouragement. Be encouraged. God converted Saul for your sake. And last, just leave it with this. Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're converted, very simple, do what the Lord calls you to do. Do what the Lord calls you to do. Ananias, in our story, obeyed God's call to share the gospel, even with the risks associated with it. Listen, for some of you, the Lord may be calling you to take a step of faith, to share the gospel with someone who may be hostile to the Christianity. He may be calling you to um, take a step toward the mission field. He may be calling you into ministry. I don't know what he's doing in your life calling you, but whatever it is, even if there are risks, do it. Obey, just as Ananias said, Lord, I'm your servant. What do you want me to do? That's the heart of a servant, a converted servant. Whatever the Lord's calling me to do, I'll do it. We also see in this text that Saul is converted. And immediately after his conversion, what does he do? He gets baptized right away. So I have to say, some of you in this room who haven't yet been baptized, you've believed on Jesus for salvation, but you haven't yet been baptized in water. Here's my question, brother or sister, why the delay? There is one way taught in scripture over and over again to make your faith public and identify with Jesus Christ and his family. And it is not walking an aisle during an altar call. It is not putting your name on a church membership roll somewhere. It is going public with your faith through the act of baptism in water. That is the repeated example in scripture. So brother and sister, what are you waiting on? If you're with Jesus, show it to the world. Not because you're trying to earn your salvation or earn God's acceptance. You're baptized publicly to show you've already been granted salvation and already been granted God's acceptance. For the heart of a true convert, obedience to Christ is less like following an order and more like saying, Lord, your wish is my command. I love you. What do you want me to do? In baptism is part of what God calls us to do. Baptism is standing publicly and saying, I once was one of God's enemies because of my sin, but now I'm a member of his family because of his son. Grace turns enemies of his family into members of his family.